This week, Representative James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, talks about his role in bringing a new African-American history museum to Charleston. This is a great country. It does not have to be made great again. It's a great country. Uh, our challenge is making this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its citizens. He joins a class taught by former Charleston, South Carolina Mayor Joseph Riley and Professor Carrie Taylor at the Citadel Military College. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great honor to be with today and, and present today uh, a dear friend and one of the great leaders of our country, Jim Clavin. Congressman Clavin is currently the majority with the third ranking Democrat in the United States House of Representatives has been in the Congress uh, since 1993 and has had a, a phenomenal record of achievement in economic development and racial progress. And he's one of the most revered members of the Congress. Um, about uh, 19, about 20, 20 years ago, I, um, we were working to develop the idea of a International African American Museum. And uh, Congressman Clabin was then as busy as anyone in the Congress. If you went to his office in um, on the Capitol Hill, it would like Grand Central Station, people coming and going and everybody needing time uh, from, from the congressman and consult consultation with him. And I went to ask the congressman if he would consider being chair of the board of the International African-American Museum that we had just created. And um, he was so busy, I was timid to ask. And he said, well, Joe, let me ask Emily. Emily was a congressman's dear wife who we lost sadly just a few years ago. And um, sign of great respect for his wife because he was busy as can be in Washington. They would get to South Carolina as often as they could. And about two weeks later, he called me back and he said, Joe, Emily said yes, and I will. Jim Clavin never missed a meeting of the board of the International African American Museum. And those meetings were in Charleston. As busy as he was, not only did he not miss the meetings, but he was prepared. He had read everything that had been disseminated to, to the board members. He's a historian, he taught history. And, uh, and he brought an intellectual and a historical heft to the shaping of the museum. So the museum wonderfully under construction now will be open in, in uh, less than two years from now would not have happened without Jim Clavin. And he came to every board meeting, as I mentioned, and then he realized that he could help us get some federal money to get things going so it would be a conflict of interest. So he, he stepped aside and uh, and continue to advise us, advise us, and, and support us. And um, I've known the congressman since 1970, 
and, and Congressman, one thing that I always I, I admire so many things about you, sir, is uh, the Congressman ran for the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1970. No African American had been elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives since Reconstruction. Congressman Jim ran and, and, and was narrowly defeated. In fact, we all went to bed that night knowing that, that Jim Clavin would be breaking that barrier and be serving in the House of Representatives. And then as the, the votes were counted late and ballot boxes came in from wherever, uh, the next morning we found that Jim had not been elected. And Congressman, your grace and uh, accepting that so many people would have would have railed and something was done wrong or whatever. The 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 way that you, sir, handled that great disappointment to you and to us who were so fervent in our desire to have you elected is something that I'll never forget. Do you have memories about that, Congressman? Anything you'd like to share? Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Mayor. Uh, I'm going to still call you Mayor. Uh, please don't tell the current mayor that I, uh, I'm doing that. But, you know, I think I've done that in this presence as well. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, telling that story because uh, there's a little more to that story that uh, helped to firm up our relationship. During that campaign, uh, you were running for re-election. And, of course, um, uh, during that time, whoever led uh, the ticket uh, would be designated as chair uh, of, the, uh, of the delegation. Uh, and Herbert Fielder and I, another African-American, running together, um, uh, had an uphill battle. Uh, and you uh, felt uh, that you would be reelected uh, and that we could be elected. Uh, and to help with that, I'll never forget that you gave up uh, all the media. We were had fooled our resources and divided up the radio and television. Uh, you decided uh, that Herbert and I needed uh, that more than you did. And you gave us all of your uh, media time. Uh, and of course, you knew at the time uh, that you might not lead the ticket. Uh, but you thought it was more uh, beneficial to the state and to the Charleston community uh, for the two of us uh, to get elected. Uh, I've never forgotten that. And I really believe uh, that part of what led me uh, to be able to accept uh, that very disappointing defeat uh, was uh, having experienced the way you uh, were able to uh, uh, sacrifice your first place victory uh, for Herbert and me. Uh, so thank you so much for that relationship. And so uh, when you asked that I join this effort as chair of the steering committee, uh, I did go to Emily, uh, my dear wife, for 58 years uh, because I didn't want to take on another responsibility and have her say to me at some point, uh, you're taking on too much. Uh, and so uh, she would not hesitate to tell me what she felt uh, and bringing her into that decision. And I want to thank you for the relationship 
that you had with Emily as well. Uh, she admired and respected you uh, a great deal. Uh, and I really, really hope uh, that what you're doing and what we have uh, worked together to do will do uh, her memory proud. So thank you so much for having me okay. here. Well, thank you, and, and and I love Emily too. She was a she was a most wonderful person, and she was one of those people that if you were in her company, you just felt better. Her goodness and and her quality uh, was was really was so inspirational. Uh, Congressman, when you taught history at C.A. Brown High School way back then in the in the late 60s, I guess. Uh, what, what were the history books like? What did they What did they teach? What did you have as material to teach you about African-American history? Not much. It was, uh, uh, I told you in the early 60s, I became a teacher there in Charleston in January uh, 1962. Uh, spent three years there at C.A. Brown uh, teaching history. But what I did when I was teaching, I taught from the newspapers uh, rather than from the textbook. Uh, most of my fellow teachers thought back then that I was going to get fired. Uh, <laughs> I did not adhere to the, uh, uh, to the uh, let's say, the folkways of the time. Uh, but I never got fired. In fact, um, uh, I had a hard time keeping people out of my classroom yeah. because I felt uh, that history ought to be a part of the living person. And to bring those students into the history. Just think, for example, I was teaching at the time uh, that um, uh, we had the Cuban uh, crisis uh, when the Russians uh, placed uh, those missiles down in Cuba. I was standing before my classroom. Uh, what, what could I, why would I say to students, Let's talk about the Federal Crescent. Uh, when all they saw in the newspapers and on the videos about the Russians bringing uh, these missiles down uh, to Cuba, not far from Charleston where they live. And so what I did was we would pick up the newspapers and I said, now here's what's happening today. Now let's go over to chapter 22, the chapter on Cuba, and let's talk about the background to that. That's the way I talk. Uh, um uh, it was a pretty good success. And as you know, I still hold on to relationships with many of those students, even on, until this day. Uh, so uh, I, um, you know, that's the kind of thing I didn't get. When I was teaching, I mean, I was a student. Uh, the history teacher would tell us, uh, uh, you know, for a, a test, for instance, well, we got a 10-question test here. What's the date that this happened? What's the date that Columbus discovered America? What's the date uh, this, that, and the other? I hated that. Yeah. And so when I started teaching, on my first day in the classroom, I would tell my students, uh, pull out your pen and paper. I want you to write down two, uh, two dates. Uh, number one, 476 AD. Number two, 1066 uh, AD. Now, those are only two years I want you to remember. <laughs> Year that Rome, the Roman Empire fell in 476, and William the Conqueror uh, crossing, uh, opening up the New World in 1066. So that, to me, were the two big dates to remember. Other than that, 
uh, we talk about issues and how those issues uh, related to them in their everyday lives. Well, and, and Congressman, you you uh, provided great leadership to those young people. And I remember the, uh, the ambassador uh, to, to the United States, one of your students, and a couple of others that just became distinct, real distinguished leaders, and they all would, would point back to being in Jim Clyburn's class. The, the impact you had on those kids was absolutely remarkable. Thank well, you. thank you. Uh, James Gasson, uh, yeah. who grew up there, raised by his grandparents there on Cumming Street, uh, was in my class. And, uh, and when James Gasson was named uh, ambassador to Iceland. That's right. Me and says, I need you to be at my swearing in. Uh, we were out of session at the time. But I came back up here to Washington to uh, go to his swearing in. And I never shall forget uh, that when he uh, stepped to the podium uh, after being sworn in, uh, he pointed over to me. I noticed when I got there, there's a little mark on the floor that they took me to, and that's where I stood. And he pointed to me, and he said to the whole crowd uh, that he, I wish you all could be in one of his classes because he opened up the world to me. <laughs> America's shows. And that uh, did everything for me. And uh, as I was walking out of Morris uh, Brown Amy Church, uh, Emily's uh, ongoing service, I looked over to my right and standing there uh, was James Gadsden. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know that he was there when I, uh, I uh, doing the service. Uh, but he told me later uh, he would never uh, have missed that because he was in a little group that used to meet in our uh, apartment. We lived, we were in an apartment there on Cumming Street, just a few blocks from him. Uh, and he and Ralph Dawson, uh, right. his brother, uh, they would all come to our house and we would have these sessions. And I would just talk to them about the world at large so they would know. Uh, there is much more, uh, could be much more to their lives than that which existed on Charleston's uh, east side where Sierra Brown was. Uh, so that is, to me, was the backdrop uh, to this great vision that you had and still hold on to uh, with International African American Museum. Not the Charleston African American Museum or an African American Museum, but international. African American Museum, uh, because it talks about how Charleston and that community fits into the international scope of things. The kind of thing I was trying to teach uh, Ralph and uh, James and, and so many others. By the way, Ralph is now retired uh, from a, a big time attorney on Wall Street. Uh, he used to be the general counsel for American Express. Uh, that's what came uh, out of those classes. And there are so many others I could talk about, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
one thing, um, quick, we'll get to the museum quickly, but but um, when Congressman, when you, you lost the election in uh, 1970, the newly elected governor of South Carolina, John West, who for my fellow students uh, was a Citadel graduate, saw Jim Clyburn's character and the way that he with grace handled that defeat and appointed Congressman Clyburn to be the first director of the South Carolina Human Affairs Commission. And, and then the, the Congressman for Governor West really went around the state and, and making ties and connecting business and interest and, and other interests together that enabled South Carolina to move forward as a, a more racially together community. Wouldn't you say that, Congressman? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, John West saw that headline, uh, reflected upon my statement. Uh, uh, I did not say it earlier, uh, but when I was asked what happened uh, in that election, I simply said, it looks like I didn't get enough votes. Uh, and when I was pressed, uh, I held to that. It looks like I didn't get enough votes. And that was the headline on that Thursday morning. Uh, I talked to a reporter the Wednesday after the Tuesday election. On that Thursday morning, John West, uh, having just been elected governor uh, of South Carolina, uh, was going out to Kiowa, which was nothing but a hunting ground at that time, uh, passing through Charleston. He picked up newspapers. That's right. And he immediately called. Uh, I was not home. He spoke with Emily. And he told him to please have me call him. And I called him. And he asked me to meet him the following Monday. I did. Uh, and we, uh, he offered me uh, a position on his staff. And he said to me at the time, uh, I, at first I turned it down. I said, no, I don't think I need to do that. I'm a little bit too caustic. Uh, and he said to me, uh, if I had your talent, uh, I would be a little more caustic than you are. And so that's where that's, that started the relationship. And my desk in Columbia yeah. uh, was the desk that he had uh, as governor. Okay. His wife, Lois, when John West, uh, when I became majority whip, she called me and she said, John West would be so proud of this. I want you to have his desk. Wow. She gave me the desk he had as governor. And I sit behind that desk right now, every time I go uh, to my Columbia office. And I would hope that would be somewhat uh, of uh, a lesson to, to some of your students. Uh, my dad used to tell me all the time, you never say everything that's on your mind. Uh, I'm not gonna say what was on my mind uh, on that morning uh, after that 1970 election, uh, but it certainly, uh, I kept it there and I talked about the results, and it made all the difference. A different headline, I don't think I would have ever gotten that call uh, from John West, and certainly wouldn't be sitting here now. Uh, that's the number three guy among Democrats in the United States House of Representatives. Yeah, I agree with that, Congressman. And why I raise that, that question uh, for, the, for the students, because it's such important life lessons in that. And you, you accept disappointments with grace, and, and you build for the future. And that's one of the many great lessons that Jim Clyburn has, has given us, not only as legislative leadership, 
but as a as a human being, as a someone you, you could trust and, and who inspired those kids. He was teaching at C.A. Brown School, and he inspires the members of Congress now, right now on both sides of the aisle. They look up to Jim Clyburn because of his character and his intellect and his, his determination. Uh, it's really uh, amazing for us. Uh, Congressman, changing subjects a little bit, it would seem to me that the recent unfortunate efforts, in my opinion, to, um, to uh, make it less easy for, for people to vote, just more, more cumbersome than, than it needs to be, that that is, is a bit reminiscent of what happened after Reconstruction, a, a different form and way, but, but it, it seems to me that it's very unfortunate that, that in our country that there are any efforts we should be, we respectfully believe we should make it easier and less cumbersome for American citizens to vote rather than throw these obstacles in their way. What are your thoughts about that, Congressman? You're so uh, right about that. I, I, I really believe that we have to be very, very careful uh, in, in this great country that we have. I, I have said over and over again, uh, this is a great country. It does not have to be made great again. It's a great country. Uh, our challenge is making this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its citizens. And the foundation upon which that greatness uh, is made uh, is the unfettered right uh, to the ballot. And we have grown uh, in our pursuit of a more perfect union by opening up that ballot. Uh, that's what the 1964 Civil Rights Act was all about. That's what the 1965 Voting Rights Act was all about uh, in pursuit of perfection by making uh, the franchise, the ballot, uh, more uh, accessible uh, to all of its citizens. Uh, and for us to uh, get to the point uh, of uh, backtracking okay. on that most important uh, thing about a democracy would be uh, to destroy to take us off that pursuit, and I think it very well destroy this fragile democracy uh, that we have. We have been a shining light, as Ronald Reagan would say, on the hill for a long time. Uh, people that looked to this country, uh, for example, for a long time, I don't know that anybody will look with honor upon any country uh, that would uh, turn the clock back uh, on its pursuit of perfection, who will take away uh, the, the right to vote, as some uh, jurisdictions uh, seem to be pursuing. I would hope uh, that this will be an anomaly on the part of a couple of states, and let's get back uh, in pursuit of uh, perfection. Thank you, Congressman. And I know we probably have some questions. <clears throat> Carrie, do we have questions ready yet? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's well, right. let's yeah. Open it up. <clears throat> yeah, please. And, and just as a reminder, um, 
for you know any of the students or really any of our guests, if you want to uh, put questions into the chat, I'll do my best to relay those to the congressman. I wanted to um, just maybe to to take us back just for a minute, uh, Congressman, to the the 1960s, and I think about um, you know the work that you did around um, the Orangeburg massacre and especially around the Charleston Hospital strike. And I, you know, think about, uh, you know, that period as a time of such great upheaval, you know, the assassination of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. And, and I'm wondering if you might draw some parallels or make some comparisons to our contemporary politics and, um, you know, to, to, uh, you know, what, what, what are the, you know, the comparisons uh, between today and 1968, you know, if those are appropriate. Well, so well, 1968. You know, I was long out of out of school at the time. Uh, I uh, I started teaching at Charleston, as I said, in 1962, and went to work for John West in 1971. In 1968, uh, I was in Charleston at the time, but I was running the neighborhood youth group, new careers, and in the, the fall of '68, I, I became director uh, of the South Carolina Commission for Farm Workers, and uh, I was. That's where I uh, really was uh, at the time of the Hansburg Massacre. Now, I knew uh, many of the students. In fact, Ike Williams was one of the students leading that, who was from North Charleston. And Ike uh, was on my staff uh, as congressperson when he passed away. So what was going on then, uh, I um, was very much involved with. I taught Ike. Uh, how to how to uh, bowl, and so he uh, and I stayed in touch doing all of that, and then um, I became uh, sort of um, you know, at the time of the hospital strike in 1969. We also had a garbage worker strike. Uh, uh, a few people uh, fail to remember that, and Bill Saunders, uh, who along with Mayor Butry. Uh, was leading the hospital strike. And then when the garbage strike, strike came along, for some strange reason, they asked me to get involved with the garbage workers to help negotiate and end into that. So we had two things going on simultaneously, but we met every evening to keep things on course. So uh, the lines of communication stayed open. And that's why uh, I'm a little bit concerned today uh, about cutting off discussions. You have to find ways they keep the communication going. Uh, and if you stop talking, uh, you're never going to get successfully uh, of any issue. So what was going on back then, a lot of what you see today, uh, I think is reminiscent of that. And I do believe uh, that we overcame back then because people with open minds, some people with broad shoulders, uh, stepped up uh, to get us uh, back on track and back where we needed to go. But that 1970 election came right after that hospital spot. So here is Joe Riley running for re-election, saying, I'm giving up my media. I paid for it, it's mine. But it's more important for these two people for our legislature uh, uh, to uh, be integrated. And by the way, though I lost that election, I failed to uh, say Herbert Phelan won. 
Uh, and uh, I've only become the first uh, African American to serve on the governor's staff. Uh, and so we both came out winners. Uh, so I would say to young people all the time, uh, it may, these experiences you had, it may look uh, like the, that obstacle uh, is a, a stumbling uh, block, but it could very well be a stepping stone if you respond uh, appropriately uh, uh, to it. Congressman, our, uh, one of our wonderful librarians has a, a question for you. Uh, uh, Ruby Murray um, asks, uh, can, if, if you might say a little bit about the political damage that the slogan defund the police did to candidates in the recent elections. And do you have any suggestions for a better framework for, uh, you know, the, the urgent need for police reform uh, moving forward? Yes, I do. And I've been writing about it and I've been talking about it. But I think that we have to all uh, reimagine uh, policing. Uh, I think that, um, you know, uh, if you're uh, a lawyer and uh, you are policed by the Bar Association, I just saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, two lawyers in South Carolina, maybe more, I saw the headlines about two who were uh, disbarred uh, because they did something wrong. Uh, so the same thing has to take place with policing. It's an honorable profession. Uh, my cousin Wilson Byron uh, was almost uh, for 40 years a police officer in Camden. I spoke at his homegrown service. Uh, I thought, thought he was an honorable person in an honorable profession. So we cannot allow one bad apple uh, to ruin the entire battle. And that's what would happen if you don't Extricate, get that bad apple out of the process. And that's what we have to do. This whole notion that we seem to have, that once you strap on a gun or pin on a badge, all of a sudden uh, you're a saint and you cannot be held accountable. And that's what has been allowed to creep into policing. Uh, we have to have police. Uh, there's a, it's an honorable profession to be in, and I support that. But we should not uh, go so far uh, as to do uh, to the current state of affairs, uh, like with Black Lives Matter, what happened to us back in the 1960s, when John Lewis and I uh, were uh, demonstrating, helping to form what became known as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, SNCC. Uh, we were, SNCC was taken by a, a group of people who came out with a new slogan, Burn, David, Burn. Uh, that undercut what we were doing, undermined the effort. And I saw that along with John Lewis. Just a few months before he passed away, the two of us sat on, in the back of the House chamber one day, and we said that we needed to speak out. Uh, we didn't should stand by and allow uh, sloganary to kill the Black Lives Matter movement the way it did the student uh, movement that we were a part of back in the 60s. Now, I want all your students to, to notice 
I keep talking about the student movement. You never heard me call it the civil rights movement. There has always been a civil rights movement. What was going on back in the 1960s were students, the student nonviolent The NAACP was formed in 1909. Uh, so there's always been a civil rights movement. Uh, it would it'd be the Stono Ferry or the uh, Denmark BC insurrection of 1822. Uh, these things always take place. So I try to try to put things into proper perspective. So I'm going to say to your students, let's uh, keep things in the proper perspective. And one of them is keep policing in the proper perspective. And let's remember uh, that throwing uh, out a bad policeman uh, is not to destroy uh, the profession. Our uh, good student and uh, uh, the president of the campus chapter of the Young Democrats and he's active in the uh, Young Democrats statewide, Tyler Mitchell, uh, would like to uh, uh, ask you that, you know, given all the events of the previous year, what are the prospects that America can build a stronger foundation in the area of social equality? I think the prospects are great that it could be done. Uh, my dad used to say something to me all the time that I think about a lot these days. Where there is a will, there is a way. What we have to do is develop the will. And I don't think enough people have developed the will to do what's necessary. It's so easy uh, to walk away from it. It's easy to pretend it is not going on. Uh, the hard part is working together and putting aside individual differences. You know, the mayor and I have been talking about my late wife here today, and I, I, I said to people a lot, I was born and raised in the town of Sumter. I came to, uh, went to South Carolina State, and I met Emily on that campus. Now, she was born and raised up in Monk's Corner on a little 22-acre farm. And we found out very early in our marriage that our backgrounds were so different that we had to make some significant adjustments uh, in order to have uh, a successful marriage. And I think the same thing applies to almost everything that we do. We have to learn that we have different backgrounds, different experiences, and we have to learn from each other. And you don't necessarily learn from people by shutting them up. You learn from them by listening to them. Uh, you get uh, an atmosphere for solving problems uh, by coming together. Uh, and so uh, I would say the prospects are great if we can keep people engaged on a very personal level. Uh, and that's the challenge for me to be able to set aside uh, whatever uh, my uh, inclinations might be long enough to listen to the other guy to see whether or not he's got a better idea. And the same thing uh, uh, applies to women as well. I happen to be the father of three daughters. Uh, I listen to them. Uh, I talk to them. I ask their advice. Uh, and I often follow it. You know, if I, as I've been standing here, I literally keep getting goosebumps. And um, I mean it. And it's just so thrilling to see this fine 
wise man representing our country in the Congress, representing us in South Carolina, but, but truth and injustice, uh, knowledge, experience, it's, it's, you know, we often read about things in, in uh, political life that, that displease us. And it's so important that we rejoice when we see someone like Jim Clavin, who's essentially devoted his life to this cause. And it's about honesty and justice, honesty and injustice and integrity and service. So for everyone who tuned in today and certainly for the students of the class I'm honored to teach here, Congressman, we just thank you so much for, for being with us and the marvelous example you give all of us of public service, uh, decency, and what it means to be a citizen of our country. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I would commend to all of your students. If you have not done so already, please do me a big favor. Read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham City Jail. That to me, uh, next to the Bible, is one of the most timeless uh, documents I've ever read. And I want to call your attention to one little part of that book. King uh, wrote in that book uh, that we uh, are going to be made to repent in this generation, not just for the ritualic version of these are bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. And so the good people, uh, when we see uh, injustice, uh, must break our silence. Uh, we have to do what's necessary to preserve this country. We have been an example for the world, and we cannot allow any misfits uh, to destroy uh, that uh, mantra that we have developed over the years, being uh, that shining light on the hill. So thank you so much, uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, for allowing me uh, to be here with you today. Tecklenburg, uh, that um, uh, I'm not disrespecting him when I call you. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. And if I could just add one thing on, on the um, for the students, the, uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. He, he was in jail. He wasn't given any paper to write on, uh, so he he wrote that most amazing letter on the margins and the edges of the newspapers. He was collecting. It just uh, it, it, the, the message is so powerful, but but the, the knowledge of what that courageous, industrious man did to make sure that the truth get out—it's really wonderful. Thank you very much, Congressman Clive, and you. Thank you, brother. Thank, thank all of you for being here today. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast presidential recordings. Season one looks at the presidency of Lyndon Johnson through his secretly recorded phone calls. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.